Okay, so as we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start reading together in verse 11, and we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes as he writes this second epistle to the church in Corinth. And we're kind of picking up in the middle of the Apostle Paul's thought. So before we read this passage, let me set a little bit of the context for us. In this second epistle that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, a majority of his letter, as you read through this epistle, you find that he is uh, defending his ministry in a certain way to the Corinthians. The Corinthians had been influenced by people who were coming and who were looking at the Apostle Paul and, and who were denigrating Paul and denigrating his ministry. So Paul was writing to these Corinthians and giving in some ways a defense of his ministry and really the, the critique that Paul was experience, uh, experiencing of his ministry and, and what people were seeing in his ministry was that the ministry that the Apostle Paul had and the message that he was preaching did re really did not conform to the worldly vision of success. The metrics by which someone would measure a successful ministry, in their eyes, Paul was not really measuring up. And so Paul, despite this criticism, he was writing to the Corinthians to assure them that his ministry was in keeping with the truth of the gospel and therefore was acceptable to God. And that ministry and that, that desire of being acceptable to God, Paul says, this was his ultimate aim, to please Christ and to serve others with the gospel. And that was what drove the Apostle Paul in his ministry. He was not worried about what everyone else thought. He wasn't worried about the human evaluations of his ministry. He was looking to minister in such a way that God was pleased and that others were served. And whether or not Paul received great renown, whether or not he was built up, that was off the table for Paul. And so he says that he's going to continue to pour out his life in this kind of a ministry. And so as we pick up reading the passage in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, this is the context in which Paul is writing. So he says this, therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to consider primarily, uh, starting in verse 14, the conclusion that Paul draws about the death of Jesus Christ. And I think this is important to us because as we start into a new year, you know, and as we think of New Year's and, and, and we think about New Year's resolutions and we look at we look ahead to our year and, and what is this year going to hold for us and, and how are we going to live and what is going to be the focus and the priority of my life in this upcoming year, I think this text is very pertinent for us to examine because I think if we understand the conclusion that the Apostle Paul draws and how that shaped his life, we can also draw a similar conclusion, and our lives will be shaped in the same way. So let's look, starting in verse 14, at what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, For the love of Christ controls us, or compels us, or constrains us. What Paul is saying is this, as he was speaking to the Corinthians of his ministry, as he was speaking about why he did what he did, and even in the, the difficulties that he faced. And we can read later on in the chapter, if we go down to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about all of the experiences of persecution and hardship and difficulty that he faced regularly. And someone might look at that and ask the question, why? Why would you do all, all of that? Why would you face, up, face so many difficulties? Why would you continue to hold up under so much pressure? And Paul gives the summary statement in verse 14. He says, the love of Christ controls us. Now this word controls us is, is an interesting word. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 5, we find the same word but it's translated this way. It talks about Paul and when he was, he was ministering and he was traveling. And it says when Silas and Timothy came, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. That's that same word which here is translated controls. It's an idea of, of being limited, of being constrained. The love of Christ places limits on us, places bounds on us to where we can only do a certain thing. And what does Paul say that is? He says the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, 
and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for who, him for who their sake died and was raised again. Let's unpack these two verses. Paul says that this is the love of Christ. Christ's love for me expressed on the cross, expressed through his sacrificial life and death. And then, of course, his resurrection. Paul says, this gives a focus to my life. Look at what he says. The love of Christ controls us, and and how does this happen? He says in verse 14, because we have concluded this. We've drawn this conclusion as we think about and meditate on Christ's love for us. We come to this conclusion. One has died for all, and therefore all have died. Now, who is this all that Paul is talking about? I think there are a couple things that help us to understand that. First of all, as we already mentioned, the context. Paul is giving a defense, as we said, of his ministry from people who are looking at his ministry from a very worldly point of view. They are looking at Paul's ministry. They're seeing him persecuted. They're seeing him poor, experiencing hardship. They're only seeing the outward expressions, the externals, and they're saying, he's nothing. How can that possibly be from God? If Paul was living a ministry that was pleasing to God, don't you think that God would bless him? Don't you think that God would protect him? That God would make his life easy? That God would give him good health and allow him to prosper? So surely, someone who is poor and someone who is persecuted and someone who is constantly under hardship and difficulty, that can't be of God. But we remember that God does not always operate in the same way we think. The scripture tells us that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And God sees beyond the external appearances. It's exactly what he said to Samuel when Samuel went to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. You remember that? He sees the first one. And he's tall and he's handsome. And Samuel said, surely this is the anointed one of God. But what did God say to Samuel? He said, don't look at his height. Don't look at how handsome he is. Because I've refused him. This isn't the one. And then he said to Samuel, the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord examines the heart. So Paul, as he talks about this love of Christ that is controlling him, we must understand that he is saying that, that, that this goes beyond external appearances. It goes to what is in the heart. But as we think about who Paul is referencing when he says that he died, Christ died for all, there are some passages that speak of the same idea in Romans, for example. Keep your finger here in 2 Corinthians 5 and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. 
Paul is speaking about this same truth to the Romans. And he says this in Romans 6, starting in verse 3. He says, do you not know, and look at how Paul qualifies the all here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. So Paul here is not trying to solve some sort of theological argument about, okay, who did Christ die for? He's referring here to believers. He says that he died for all, and therefore all have died. When Paul speaks to the Colossians, he puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And look at how, how he says this in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says in the following verse, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What Paul is saying here is that because Christ died, all of us who are in Christ are also dead. Dead to what? Dead to an old way of living. Dead to living for self. But as we know, Christ did not stay dead. He was raised again. And so in the same way, we have also been raised to a new life. A life of living in Christ and a life of living for Christ. And this is not uniquely a Pauline thought or concept. Peter echoes the same thing in 1 Peter 2 and verse 24 when he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so Paul says, this is the conclusion that controls my life. That controls our lives collectively. He says, one has died, and that means all of us are dead. If we are in Christ, we are dead. And just last week, we, we witnessed a beautiful image of that in the waters of baptism. We had two young men 
who were baptized, who were put under the water, symbolizing death. Death to a life of living for self, and then were brought back above the water to symbolize a resurrection to a new life. And Paul makes this clear here in verse 15. He makes it even more explicit when he says he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So in Jesus' death, we die. And in his resurrection, we find new life. And as we start this new year of 2022, we need to be reminded that this is the essence of the gospel. The gospel doesn't simply mean accepting that Jesus came to earth, he was born, which we just celebrated at Christmas, that he lived a sinless life, that he died and was raised again. Those are the truths, and we must believe that, but those truths must have an impact on our lives. Let me read to you what David Garland says in his commentary on this passage from the New American Commentary series. He says this, Christ's death must change the way we live here and now on earth and not simply ensure our entrance into God's eternal presence. Anyone who expects to live in the resurrection must respond properly to Christ's death. This response requires more than intellectual assent to the proposition that Christ's death atones for sins. It must mold how one lives. This response provides the essential criterion for discerning who truly belongs to Christ and who does not. Those who belong to Christ do not live for themselves. In societies given to self-promotion, self-fulfillment, and self-indulgence, Christians will stand out as distinctly different. They live only for Christ and give up their own rights for the good of others and do not insist on having their own way. And if we believe the gospel, if we hold to the truth that Jesus was born, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, and was raised again, Paul says the conclusion that we must draw is not that the gospel gives us a get-out-of-hell-free card. The gospel changes our lives. The gospel demands that we no longer live for ourselves, but we now live for the one who died and was raised for us. This has some implied consequences, and Paul lays these out in the following verses. Let's look now at verse 16. And I love how he starts this verse. He says, from now on, therefore. So as a consequence of this conclusion, of this truth, from this point where we understand and we accept the gospel, things are going to be different. And what does that look like? From now on, therefore, he says, we regard no one according to the flesh. So being in Christ changes how we see people. We don't see people according to the flesh or from a worldly point of view. 
And see, Paul is saying this in relation to those who were looking at his ministry and were saying, no, this can't be from God because it doesn't meet with the outward worldly success metrics. Paul says, no, in Christ, we look at people differently. And he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him this way no longer. You see, the way Paul would have viewed Christ prior to his conversion is very different from the way that Jesus is viewed today in our popular society. People, many people that you talk to, might think of Jesus as a a good moral teacher or an example for us to follow. But in the the, the system of Judaism, in the Jewish system, Because Christ was crucified, he would have been the object of scorn because in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, the Bible says that anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So the Jews would have looked at Jesus as cursed and abandoned by God. And Paul, having been raised as a Pharisee and familiar with the law, no doubt would have viewed Christ in this way. And even for those in the Roman world, for the Romans to imagine that your hero, your leader, the one to whom you look and aspire, was someone who underwent the penalty reserved for the worst of criminals, the shameful death of being exposed and hanged on a cross. How could that be that you would worship someone who was so utterly defeated? So Paul says, even if we regarded Christ in this way previously, now that we have come to understand the gospel, we see things differently. And so as we understand the gospel, it impacts how we see Christ. It impacts how we see all of life. Look at verse 17. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this verse is is interesting because as, as you examine it, if you translate it literally, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. And so people wrestle with what does that mean? Because you kind of have to supply a few words there to complete the concept. Does it mean, as our text here says, he is a new creation? And we know that that is true. Because when we are in Christ, there is a transformation that takes place inside of us. And the old man has been overthrown. There is a new life in Christ. But there is also another way we can look at this that expands the idea even further And that would be to say, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Christ's death marks a dramatic break between the old age and the new one. And this is, Paul alludes to this when he says, the old has passed away and the new has come. See, the gospel is more comprehensive than just individual transformation. 
Yes, we are transformed individually and personally, but the gospel is more than just that. The gospel is not just a self-help gospel, a self-improvement gospel. Just this past week, we went up with some friends to Christmastown in Williamsburg at Busch Gardens. And we, we sat in on, on a, a presentation that they did called Unto Us. And it was, it was well done, and they were singing songs that, that portrayed the truth about Jesus. And then you got to the end, and they closed with a song. There can be miracles if you believe. But the gospel is more than just that. The gospel is more than just if we have some sort of generic belief, it's going to somehow make our lives better and we'll be able to accomplish things we never thought we could accomplish before. The truth of the gospel is that when we are in Christ, when we die with Christ and are raised again, everything is different. Everything changes. And that is what we look for. That is what we must have. Because the old sinful nature still lives within us. And we still fight that war every day. So we cannot simply rely on ourselves as if the gospel gives us a booster shot, so to speak, to make us more effective. The gospel has to change everything. As we continue looking in verse 18, the new creation includes a whole new community and a different way of looking at and relating to one another. All this is from God, Paul says, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The fact that God took us and reconciled us to himself, people from different countries, from different ethnicities, from different backgrounds. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul wrote to the Ephesians about this, and he said that Jesus has made us both one. He was speaking of Jew and Gentile, or non-Jew. And there was complete division between those two groups. Complete animosity between those two groups. And Paul says, in Christ, he has made us one and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. We look at our world today and we see the hostility. We see the hatred. We see the polarization that is prevalent, not only in our country, but throughout the world. And the only way that that hostility is ever going to be overcome is through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul says to us at the end of verse 18 that God has reconciled us to himself. He has destroyed the hostility. He has made peace. But it's not just for the sake of us so that we can live in peace. 
Because now we who are at peace with God have been given a commission. Look at verse 19. That is, God in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. So the gospel not only changes how we look at Christ and how we see the world around us, but the gospel gives us a new purpose for life. Our purpose in life, now that we have died and have been raised with Christ, we are living in him and for him. Our purpose is to be his ambassadors, his emissaries. Our purpose is to be those who reconcile others to God and to one another. Paul says in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. The idea of an ambassador is an emissary, someone who is sent out. And as he is sent out, he formally represents another person in their absence. We heard this morning, as we were talking with Wesley, how he has the opportunity now, through this new ministry that God has opened up, to reflect the light of Christ to those who may never have heard those who may never have encountered a Christian. And now he has this opportunity to reflect that, to be God's ambassador, God's representative. And an ambassador, as he goes to a different place, representing the God who has sent him, he is to conduct himself just as that person would. You think in this world, countries send ambassadors, representatives to other countries. And as those people go, they are to represent. the. They, they can't just go and live however they want, do whatever they want. They are to live in a way that represents the one or the country who has sent them. And we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. Wherever he chooses to send us, we are to live in such a way that we represent God through our lives. And God makes his appeal through us, as verse 20 says. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. But contrary to human ambassadors in this world, as Christians, as we are sent to represent God, we cannot expect to have any sort of diplomatic immunity. We cannot expect to be exempt from any sort of punishment or harsh treatment. And that is what Paul was saying here to the Philippians. And throughout history, we read the Scriptures, we realize that God's ministers have often been rejected, mistreated, and at times even killed because the message that they brought was not what those who were seeing things from an earthly perspective wanted to hear. And so Paul, as he talks 
in, down in chapter 6 from verse 4 all the way through verse 10. Look at what he says. He says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, by knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons or instruments of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. So as we understand the gospel, it changes our perspective, even on difficulty and hardship. The natural human perspective on difficulty and hardship is that they are to be avoided at all costs. Even if we have to compromise, even if we have, whatever we do, all our, our technology, anything we can create is to make life easier. But Paul says the gospel gives us new perspective on Christ, on our life, on our purpose as to why we are here, and even on how we see and approach difficulty and hardship. He says through all these things, verse 4, we commend ourselves in every way. And so as we look at this passage, we can see how being in Christ, how truly embracing the gospel changes everything in our lives. And there's a song that we are going to sing in just a minute. Pastor Thomas is going to sing for us, and then we will sing it together at the end. And the title of that song is this, The Gospel Changes Everything. When we truly understand the gospel, we cannot be the same. And so as we go into this new year, I want to I ask you two questions. Number one, have you been reconciled with God this morning? I'm not asking do you know the facts of the gospel. Have you been reconciled with God? Have you, has there been peace made between you and God? Formerly, we were all living lives for self. We were living for ourselves. And that created hostility between us and God because we rebelled against his law. Has Jesus Christ reconciled you to God? Has he made peace in your hearts with God? And secondly, my question is, is Christ's love controlling your life so that you no longer live for yourself, but rather you are an ambassador of Christ, an ambassador of reconciliation? As we go into this year, I encourage all of us to consider those two questions. Because as the gospel changes who we are, it should also change our purpose and how we live. And I pray 
that it will. I pray that as the Apostle Paul said, we draw this conclusion. Christ died, therefore we died. Christ was raised, and therefore we were raised, but to a totally different kind of life. And then as he says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, things will be different. Might this new year in 2022, be a different year? Might it be a year that we as individuals and as a church body commit not to live anymore for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again for our sake?